that's one of the the best things about church is that we're we're uplifting for one another and we hold light for one another in times of grief and times of death when we can't see that light on our own and and my first thought was how is she going to experience that light and be upheld by the community when when she's not even able to touch or see or stand next to others it's also important for pastors to know in general right now uh, with COVID, um, uh, with the national, with the world on fire um, and all of our protests, um, with um, all of all the deaths and sicknesses we're dealing with, is that um, because we're functioning um, in leadership roles, uh, it, it can also mean that we compartmentalize or cut off our own grief. Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin-Connor, your host. I'm Abigail Visco-Russert, co-host and co-producer. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer. In this episode, we are talking about grief. You'll hear the story of an early COVID funeral conducted digitally by Pastor Dean Clatter in Healdsburg, California. You'll hear from the Reverend Dr. Sonia Waters, who will help us wrestle with our understanding of death and Christian practices in times of grief. And you will hear from Jackie Rodriguez, a rising ministry leader who is preparing to enter her final year of seminary in a pandemic. My name is Dean Clatter. I'm a co-pastor at Healdsburg Community Church in Healdsburg, California. And my wife and I co-pastor the church. We've been there for about five and a half, six years now. And it's a great congregation in the middle of wine country. Um, and we do everything from uh, marriages to pastoral care calls, just general ministry. Dean, now we would love to hear this story, the story of, you know, this COVID case in your congregation. Um, Yeah. So early February, our uh, two people in our congregation, a couple went on a cruise and um, it was one of the cruise lines that was in kind of spread the COVID virus, several people infected online on the cruise. And uh, basically the the couple came back and it was so early on that, you know, things were still very, very uh, shaky in terms of testing, in terms of, is this just a flu? Is it a cold? That kind of thing. So this couple goes on a cruise and they come back. Um, and while on the cruise, the, the wife was basically just kind of tired for a couple of days um, on the cruise, didn't really want to do much. And the um, husband was relatively okay. They come back and um, he starts getting progressively sicker. This is late February, um, just before Ash Wednesday. They they come back to Healdsburg and he is getting sicker and sicker all the time. Um, the They finally kind of put him in the hospital and are checking him out for different symptoms. Um, maybe it's the flu, maybe it's a cold, like a bad cold, a respiratory issue. Um, still, you know, something like right now we would be like, well, obviously you have to test the guy, but, um, it was so early on anyway, during that time, the, the wife 
um, while he's getting checked out, while he's in the hospital, she comes to a Ash Wednesday service that we have and, and also goes to a Bible study in yeah. a small room with 12 other elderly women. Um, she is uh, elderly herself. Oh my goodness. And, and, um, and, and she didn't really think anything of it because her husband was just sick with something. Um, and it wasn't until after that Bible study and after all of those women, including the wife of the person who was sick, um, had gone to church on that Sunday that they did the testing and it came back and it found out that it was COVID. So he's in the hospital. He's getting progressively sicker. We're wondering as a congregation, are we going to become kind of a vector for this uh, and be a hotspot for, for our County. And meanwhile, um, Sonoma County, where I live, was one of the first, uh, basically seven counties in the country to go and shelter in place. Hmm. Um, so we, I had one of the first COVID cases in California, in the country, during a, a time when we were one of the first counties to go on shelter in place. Um, and it was, it was pretty scary. So during this time, um, he gets continually and progressively sicker um, after his diagnosis. And the wife, um, you know, I'm trying to do my best in pastoral care to come alongside her, call her several times. She's not allowed to go in to see him. She's um, at first able to talk to him, but then he starts losing his capacity to talk. Um, and finally, um, he ends up passing and the doctors had said, you know, basically his lungs had turned to kind of Swiss cheese is just what they said. So, um, kind of this thing is eating him in from the inside out with his lungs. So she's devastated, but unable to, you know, really see him. She was able to see him very briefly through a window um, you know, on the, on the ICU floor, um, right before they kind of pulled everything because he had gone on a ventilator on that. So, um, she would, that was her last kind of image. And then we were wondering what, what the service was going to be like by that time we had gone into a County lockdown and there was no gatherings whatsoever that were allowed to happen. Um, and we had gotten guidance from the state in planning the service or planning the graveside that there were to be no gatherings of family members. And so we kind of worked our way around some of the legislation or some of the decision-making, um, that came from the state of California and everyone was allowed to be in their cars with the windows up at the gravesite. Um, and family members could, could be able to see the, the service going on that way. And so I ended up standing at the head of the casket, one person outside, and I Zoom conference called 
into all of the all of the the basically the the people who were in their cars with their windows up and um and that was able to deliver the the service in that way um and it, it i was trying to think about how do i how do i offer some kind of tangible physical presence um when i can't console when i can't hug when i can't look into the widow's or the family's eyes and i decided that i needed to print off my my litany or my liturgy and what i had to say i printed it off and i put it in an envelope so just in case you know the internet went buggy or i dropped out they would know what i had said and after the service um i took a flower from the casket and a um and the envelope and went over to the truck that i knew that the widow was in and it was tinted glass and she rolled it down and you know she had four family members in her car with her and they were all just just sobbing in the car um and i slid the envelope and the flower through the three inch gap in the window and they rolled it up and then everybody drove off and it was awful. (laughs) It was, it was really awful. What was your first thought when you found out that you would have to do a funeral this way or that you had, you'd have to completely reimagine this funeral? My first thought was for the wife, the widow, and understanding that she would continue to grieve alone. Mm-hmm. Um, she had put herself in self-isolation because she knew that she was a person that would be risky or vulnerable for others um, once she understood that he had COVID. So she was, you know, eating, eating alone, sleeping alone, um, existing alone while her husband was getting sicker and sicker in a, in a hospital bed alone. And when I heard that we wouldn't be able to have a gathering and that that would be the case, uh, I, my first thoughts were, were, my goodness, she's going to have to say her very last goodbyes and have this ritual that is supposed to gain us closure and to be able to speak the the promise and the gospel of the resurrection. And she's going to be alone again. <laughs> hmm. um, so desperately need community in a time of, of death and you need support from others. That's one of the the best things about church is that we're, we're uplifting for one another and we hold light for one another in times of grief and times of death when we can't see that light on our own. And, and my first thought was how is she going to experience that light and be upheld by the community when, when she's not even able to, 
touch or see or stand next to others. Wow. Dean, as you kind of um, think about the last couple of months and um, summarize summarize in a reflection what these months have looked like, what where have you sensed God in the midst of all of this? Like the pandemic, um, how your understanding of God has changed or deepened, if at all? Like how, how are you ref- kind of theologically reflecting on this last couple of months? Um, I think I've seen... God at work during this time because um, there's been a a desire in my congregation to connect both locally with each other and kind of um, them seeing the opportunity to connect with the church more nationally and globally, um, in almost invisibly, the invisible universal church or global church. We're all connected. But through this time, I think it's been really great to be able to have people from other states connecting in to our worship service and being interested in what we're doing and kind of saying, we, we really, we really can be connected. The church really is connected, um, far beyond our local communities, but specifically in our local community as well. So we're both, we're both local and global in that sense. Um, that's been something that's been deepened for me and just the immense sense of opportunity. I hope that the church doesn't miss this moment because there's something, I think a larger at afoot. And if I'm just clamoring to get back and saying, well, why can't I get back into my worship space and continue to do the things that I had did before? Um, then I think I'm missing the point of maybe what God's trying to teach us in this time. Um, because, because the church is being forced into directions that were already gaining momentum before this, um, having an online presence, being connected um, in in different ways, and uh, yeah, so I think that that's some of the ways that God's been showing me, and and just basically, specifically through what we're talking about with with grief and pain that and and this funeral. Is that even, even in the loneliness and in the suffering, like Christ meets us there. Um, our, our congregation, I think there are some members of our congregation who are becoming more vulnerable um, and reaching out and saying, I, I think, you know, I need, I need to... I need I need some help relationally. Like I need to be in conversation with somebody. We think that it's probably not just Dean's congregation. A lot of us are finding that we need to reach out and we often need others to reach out to us right now. There are communities that have experienced a profound amount of loss and grief, not only in the case of COVID, but due to so many other kinds of loss, struggle, and death. Rituals and markers of time have been lost. Our sense of what it means to gather has changed. Death at the hands of systemic injustice remains. So we reached out to a professor of pastoral care for more insight. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, My name is Sonia Waters. I I live in Princeton and work at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. I teach pastoral care and uh, pastoral theology here.
one layer of, you know, pain that people experience in social settings is obviously the loss of a loved one. And Mm. the story that is framing this episode is about um, a funeral. And, you know, speaking from your experience as a priest and also your experience as an academic, um, can you talk to us about what, what is a funeral? And as you talk about it, what's significant about Christian funerals and maybe mm. Christian grieving practices? You know, that's a really good question because it's, it, it is definitely changing, um, especially in, sort of a, in a post-Christian world. Um, and, and obviously we also serve non-Christians. Um, we, it's, uh, when I was a young priest, I was taught that it's the, uh, uh, the, the priest's duty to bury the dead. Uh, no matter what, right? So we have a duty to care for the bodies of those who have passed. But but for Christians, particularly, um, gosh, if I could just summarize it easily, um, really the funeral is the final act of commending the body and soul of a person to God's care, right? So it's it's sort of a, almost a repetition of baptism in some ways. We die and are born to new life. Uh, and indeed, we die in the body and we're born to new life uh, with Jesus. So our lives are not ended, but changed. Mm. So we use uh, funerals as a ritual transitional space. Uh, the person leaves our earthly company, um, but they take their place with the company of the saints. Um, traditionally, um, uh, you know, bodies matter for us as Christians. Uh, they should. Uh, our hope is in the bodily resurrection. We believe in the incarnation of Jesus and the creation is good. And so bodies also matter what we do with bodies um, in funerals. Um, yeah, and so funerals are also, of course, because we are a family of the church, we draw around the grieving to help them remember and grieve together. Uh, but, of course, it's not only Christians we serve. Uh, what we're finding in funeral practices, of course, is a big shift where funerals are now more about remembering the person than proclaiming the faith. And so uh, remembering the person's hobbies and interests are folded into the celebration. Sometimes in funerals, pastors are struggling with uh, uh, people who also do not want to grieve. Um, We read poems about how do not grieve. I am not really dead, but I'm still alive in the sunlight or alive in your memory or um, and so pastors have some uh, negotiations to do about um, uh, uh, how they how they make a, a funeral these days are a little bit different than maybe even 20 years ago. You know what? Why is grief important? <laughs> why, is, <laughs> why should we grieve? Um, why is it, we, why is it not ideal to push it away? You know, it is not ideal. Well, because we're human beings, and indeed, this is one of as part of our emotional makeup. You can't you can't escape the Psalms without finding grief. Um, but we, we also want to be careful here in terms of uh, different cultures grieve differently. Uh, some grieve very in very emotional ways and some in very quiet ways. So we have to be careful. People will grieve differently. But is there a place for some kind of form of, of grief to take place depending on our context and cultures? Um, grief is really important uh, because if we deny our grief, then we really we, we, we deny God a place to come in and, and touch our hearts. And, and, we, and we deny other people uh, because we are made to be the body of Christ who can bear our rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, right? So um, it, it, it is part of our Christian um, tradition to draw close to people and love them through grief. So that's another reason why it's important as Christians. I'm torn when I go sometimes to funerals um, and they go straight to celebration of life. And 
the family or the friends or the whole group of people have to like go to a place before they're even able to cry where we're like joyful for their life. And like, you know, that, that I'm wondering what you think about even the phrasing of celebration of life. And then also just what it does to us to go there before we're able to, to grieve in whatever way we grieve, but before we're actually able to grieve. It's interesting, you know, I mean, I've had some, some of my parishioners want celebration of life language, but in the end, they chose pretty much the old liturgy. And so for some reason, um, you know, people, we kind of negotiate with people and figure out what they really mean, you know, when we're planning a funeral. Um, uh, so sometimes they can use the words, but really the, there's plenty of room for grief in the actual service. But it does become uh, prom- problematic, Sashama, when people um, are unable to grieve. Um, it, it, it's a funny thing. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, America is a place that likes to avoid its pain. Uh, we really do. Well, that's why. That's why the, the back to my other subject of expertise. Why we're the largest consumers of opioid medications, <laughs> right? We like to avoid our pain, um, and we don't actually in, in a like a hyper individualistic society. We many of us, not every culture in America, but many of us don't know how to show emotions in front of people, and and when we do, uh, people don't know how to respond. Uh, it's an interesting kind of cultural uh, issue for some congregations to think about um, how do we teach people how to respond appropriately to other people's emotional states? I mean, we, we have a lot that we can teach people that we're, um, uh, we're not learning uh, in, in our broader culture anymore. Um, but, but I agree it's difficult. And, and um, it, it's almost as if do we not understand that in the ambiguity of our humanity, we hold both grief and joy at exactly the same time. Hmm. Um, uh, the, the, the best funerals I go to is when people are laughing and crying at exactly the same time because they're telling stories, you know, and they're missing them. And, um, we get a lot of anxiety about letting people kind of feel. Why do bodies mm-hmm. matter? How does that intersect with our funeral practices? And then, yeah, and then we can jump off from there. Oh gosh, well you know an interesting an interesting theory is is that we uh, our, our bodies in death are treated as they are in life. Uh, so when you think about an old fashioned uh, way of doing funerals, is that you have a, a cemetery at the center of the community mm. uh, uh, where the bodies are, um, and uh, and you also have in that cemetery, unfortunately, also social class already represented. If you think about our cemetery in Princeton, there is a quote unquote kind of African American side of the cemetery with almost no headstones, uh, and then we have um, the, the 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 big names um, uh, both in our nation and at the university and at Princeton seminary where they have big headstones you know and so uh, so we even enact social realities and how we we bury our dead um and so it's something to think about how bodies uh, bodies indeed matter um uh, at, at death uh th- there was a big push by by a, a dr long dr thomas long i think was uh, um uh, in emory i believe uh about the importance of bodies at actual bodies at funerals that we've lost connection and indeed we have um, with um, taking care of a body, bringing a body into holy space, and then walking with that body to their last resting places. And that these actions are about us um, being connected to cycles of life and death, um, the, the, the cycles of, of, of the Christian story of embodiment, life and death, and, and, and bodily resurrection, and that we've lost a lot of those connections by losing bodies 
but you also have to think in a in a in a hyper individualistic social media kind of uh, neoliberal world. If you want to put the big words in there, um, we've 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 lost our understanding for caring for each other's bodies, mm. uh, and that care is a big as as we as we well know a big a big issue in, in Black Lives Matter, and let's uh, and a big issue about not not caring about black bodies, um, and and it is also an issue of not caring. Uh, for people who are now expendable because of age, you know, they no longer mm-hmm. matter anymore. Uh, there's also psychological issues, you know, with family. I can't deal with bodies. I can't face them. But some of the issue with that is in, it's a bit harder to grieve if people kind of, uh, if you can't say your last goodbyes. Now that's a debate. Uh, that, that That's a big debate. Um, whether or not one can, um, I mean, how do you tactilely, um, say goodbye to nothing. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and this becomes an issue with COVID and these funerals online. Uh, is there a way to um, have something physical there that represents the body, even if you cannot be with the body? Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of losses. So uh, it, I'm kind of wondering if, if, COVID, if the COVID situation will, will make us realize how, how much we need our bodies. Um, because people are finding they can't be with their loved ones at the hospital. They have to say goodbye, say their final goodbyes before their loved one has died. And they're not allowed back in. They get one visit, you know. Um, and in terms of whether or not bodies are, are, are um, ashes or full, uh, uh, still um, uh, intact, uh, that's also a, a huge debate. Um, but if there's nothing, um, uh, that might be even harder. Uh, to be able to sort of let go and allow this transition, this ritual transition to take place. I don't know if I'm answering all your questions, but <laughs> but <laughs> this is sort of the direction that I'm, that, that I'm thinking about. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing that uh, ashes are interesting. I try to encourage people. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I definitely am, am approve of, of, of uh, cremation, um, but um, I do try to encourage people to do something with the ashes. Hmm. Because uh, what might happen is, is there's an elongation process. Uh, you you don't just bury the dead um, and the, and mourn. You hold on to the ashes, um, and, and that seems at first like a loving thing to do. But what happens instead, uh, frankly, is that uh, I have gone to churches um, uh, and and found um, ashes in uh, the filing cabinet, ashes on the shelf. Um, ashes. People have found ashes in in when they bought houses in in their in their garages. People get lost. Wow. Mm-hmm. People get lost when they're not given a final resting place. You know, so that is also an issue. Uh. Really, bodies matter, and when you have the bodies, even of the grievers, behind mm-hmm. doors, right? Yeah, it's horrible. What is the shape of your pastoral care? Mm. for the grieving um yeah i'm curious as to what you would you would reflect on for us around that yeah you know i i mean i can give you my initial thoughts and i also want to definitely say to pastors out there gosh you are doing you know you know you've been doing this for years you know uh, um, i i don't know that i am any better than uh, than what you have to offer but i can certainly add my two cents into that um, and, and I think people uh, people uh, tend to know that we need to somehow kind of name and validate the loss. 
um, and and that we need to help people tell the story uh, and find ways to materialize the loss. Um, uh, we, we, we always need to help people identify coping skills moving forward, um, share times of memory moving forward, uh, share pictures or items of importance moving forward as people grieve. Um, uh, but when we've lost uh, the ability, it's not even just losing the body. Psychologically, if I don't see you, I can't read you. You know, so even if I'm zooming, um, I don't get the micro communication. I don't see your face move. I don't I don't I can't tell what's happening with your eyes. And, and this is how we empathize with somebody. It's by our by our body language and our facial uh, language. And so we lose that connection. And that means that pastors have to really uh, do a lot more work to verbalize hmm. what what they before could could um, could uh, ex- express in their bodies, just in their presence. Um, and so, uh, if, if I can't sit next to you in silence then I have to be able to kind of remember to verbalize, um, how much I'm here for you, how much I feel for you. It seems like you're feeling this certain way. Do you want to talk about it? Um, uh, because you can't just sort of like every pastor knows you go to somebody's, you go to somebody's living room and you just sit there. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. That's how you grieve. That's how you really grieve. And you just the conversation comes and goes. There's sometimes laughter, sometimes tears, and you mm. they show you pictures, they show you you know important medals the person won or, or you know what you know their hobbies. You just sit there. All of that is lost. Yeah. Uh and so if the pastor kind of draws from their their knowledge already about what they do when they see people, and then how do I translate that now? more explicitly within the mediums that I have. Like, so the kind of connection, the kind of questions like, okay, I need to connect, I need to ground, I need to honor lived experience. So then how do I do, if those are my goals, then how do I do this in this new medium? Uh, but yeah, it's a loss. Name, naming that loss with the person is probably also a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know, uh, and asking them what would work for them. Um, I, I'm always a fan of, you know, we're not the experts on people's lives. They'll tell us sometimes. They can tell us too. Um, so I don't know if that helps at all, but I, I know there are so many talented pastors with so many different ways of doing it. And just think about the things that you, the end result of what you naturally do. Connect, ground, honor, love, support, you know, whatever it is. And then how now in, in, in interesting, creative ways can you reach those those same goals. Well, so I'm going to ask you quickly to, you've sort of touched on it, but to go um, more deeply into some of the important markers of the grieving process. So for example, um, mm. stages of grief, um, the stages of grief for families, the stages of grief for pastors, you talked a little bit about, but I'm wondering too, if you could open that up to talk about maybe this moment that we're in, in the stages of grief mm. um, and the, and sort of being a container for grief that we are as a culture right now and how we are and are not healthy and how we're grieving as a society. Ugh. That's a lot. Mm. I know, but take any of it or all of it. <laughs> no, all. Run with all. it. Yeah. Run with it. <laughs> all right, everybody put your seatbelts on. Here we go. Here we go. Oh my God. There are things we're not doing well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
the, uh, you know, there's always, uh, I mean, everybody loves the Kubler-Ross. Uh, the, the, the one difficulty with these kinds of ideas, indeed, we have uh, we have bargaining, we have denial, we have rage, we have these things. Uh, this is true. Um, uh, but they sort of, it's sort of out of context of the fact that I'm going to have a lot more rage if I'm an African-American person in this society being abused, you know, and that's not going to be an unhealthy process. That's going to be something you should probably keep. And maybe white people need to get a bit more angry, you know, so that, so, uh, so the stages of grief can be difficult if we apply them, um, uh, to all situations, right? Um, so uh, rather than um, imagining that people go through stages, imagining uh, perhaps they have some tasks to do. Um, uh, one um, popular one is called the um, six R's, as in R, R as in recognizing. Um, so, uh, so one R is recognizing um, the reality of the loss, and, and that means it's just really important to kind of people are sometimes in disbelief that somebody has passed. Um, and so recognizing and accepting that somebody has died is, is part of this. Um, and then it's it's the it's the emotional processing stage of reacting, reacting to experiencing um, expressing the pain of the loss. Uh, and then there is also reminiscing. You notice these are the two things that kind of are intention in the funeral, right? There's the reminiscing as well. People uh, need to remember their loved ones, uh, and they need to have somebody hear hear those stories um, uh, about them. Um, and if you think about that culturally, this is why saying somebody's name is important. Mm. We have to say George Floyd, Bernard Taylor, and Ahmed Arbery. We have to say the names. Because we uh, we, uh, we we don't grieve uh, without context, without uh, a real person behind that. Uh, the uh, the next R is to relinquish old attachments, um, and this is a uh, this is a, a controversial one. Um, I might rather think about reintegrating than relinquishing. We don't um, um, we don't uh, lose our loved ones, but we do integrate them into our lives in different ways once they have gone. Um, especially if you're a Christian, um, you, you, you know that um, this is one more chapter in their, in, in their, in their eternal lives. Um, uh, and so we don't necessarily relinquish the old attachments, but we do have to reintegrate them differently um, so that we can make room, uh, so they can become part of our lives, uh, but not overcome us. That gets to the next one, readjusting and reinvesting in life. Um, uh, uh, this this can be one of the reasons why um, uh, anniversary dates are important for people. Um, uh, if you talk to people, what you'll find is what they need to talk about is a fact. Uh, we need to ask, how is it to be at home? Um, how is it to live your life without this person? Because they find that they, simple things, I wake up in the morning and, and they're not making me coffee. Um, I, 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 I leave my house and I turn to say goodbye and there's nobody there. Right, so we have to understand that grief is um, uh, is not just uh, some kind of like I've I've lost something that it's some kind of object, but instead I've lost a thousand different pieces of relationship, a thousand different patterns that have situated situated me um, into the world in relation to this person, um, and, and all of those. Uh, uh, are experienced differently over time by different people. Um, so those are the R's. Um, um, 
it's a bit cumbersome. So probably another easier one is 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 tasks. Um, we acknowledge we we just at some point we need to acknowledge the reality of the loss. We need to process the grief and pain, adjust to the world without our loved one, and then find some kind of connection with the deceased in the midst of a new life. Um, um, and this is going to be different for different people. It's much more difficult, if, again, if we don't have a body. So people who lose a people to military casualties um, and, 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 um, and don't have a body, people, um, uh, people who disappear um, and, and you don't have a body. Um, so uh, uh, at, the, at the World Trade Center collapse, it was so important that, that something was found. Um, even if it was a ring or a piece of any piece of jewelry or something, um, because they lost they they lost the actual a physical uh, reminder of people, uh, and so and this is a very interesting um, this visualization importance is very interesting in in, um, in in the Black Lives Matter movement. They know how important it is to have pictures of individuals who have been shot or died violently. Um, uh, they know how important it is to have names. They know how important it is to, to paint murals, um, uh, that human beings in their particularity, um, and in their bodies, um, matter. And, and, and we can intellectualize it or brush it off or pretend it doesn't happen if those, if we don't see it in some way, if it's not physical in some way. And so this becomes very important to us, um, uh, culturally, and that's also culturally why people, um, you know, if if you are helping somebody grieve, uh, people often want to do something, uh, plant a tree, uh, make a shrine, um, uh, uh, light a candle, um, uh, save items of clothing, uh, um, uh, make make educational funds for people. Bodies are important. Pastor Clatter talked about the importance of a community holding light for one another. He spoke of the hug he wished he could give to a grieving widow. Dr. Waters is reminding us of how bodily our grief must be and the tasks that we must do in order to approach grieving holistically. When we spoke with rising ministry leader Jackie Rodriguez, she too echoed the necessity of not only the role of our bodies in Christian ministry, but she hearkened back to the hug that Pastor Clatter talked about, the image of God's embrace. Hello, my name is Jackie Rodriguez. I am a rising senior in the MDiv program at Princeton Seminary. Um, So I'm currently living in Princeton, but originally from Orlando, Florida. And I moved, well, right outside of Orlando, Florida. And I moved to upstate New York for college at Hamilton College. And then I went straight from Hamilton College to seminary. So I've been a full-time student for the past 20 years. So we... We have been talking to people for this episode about funerals. Our story is about a funeral. And we want to hear your opinions about funerals and this sort within the COVID moment. But before we do that, we just want to know generally, like, how do you understand funerals or or think about them? And then what is the process of grieving um, that's required in pastoral leadership? So funerals... In my, I mean, I, I haven't really attended many, um, mm-hmm. but in my, in, in, in this season, also thinking about just, just like death and grieving, um, I think people just in general, they, 
really yearn for ways to like process like big life events and in terms of like in religious rituals and traditions um, and liturgies are really important, I think, to a lot of people processing just these larger events in their lives. And it's funny because like, I know that in, um, in the Protestant tradition or in the uh, Presbyterian tradition, which is, uh, you know, the tradition that I'm a part of now, we only have uh, two sacraments, which, you know, the the baptism and Lord's Supper, but it's funny because like the, in uh, Catholicism, you know, there's like the anointing of the sick and there's these last rites. And these are so important for people to kind of blend this beautiful, um, this beautiful mixture between personal identification. Like this is, I'm, this is my family member. This is me. I am this person. I am Jackie Rodriguez. I am a child of God. This is who I am. And a mixture of that and I am a part of this larger story of, mm-hmm. of what God is doing in the world and God's plans for mankind. And um, people, for some reason, like that that melding of those two things is really important in people processing, uh, again, major life events, but specifically uh, death, dying, grieving. And so funerals you know, my understanding is like, that's kind of in, again, across the board and in Christian tradition, that's kind of where our kind of last rites, if you will, for after, um, yeah, after death is kind of, uh, naming this person, acknowledging this very personal, unique identity and connecting it to this larger story, this larger, um, theology. I read this book by, uh, it's one of Henry Nolan's popular books, uh, Mm. and there was a part in it that, uh, struck me and I, and I, it was specifically about, um, it was rehashing this young chaplain who was providing pastoral care for a man who was about to go into surgery and the man ended up, um, dying in surgery. But this, after reading this scene and, and Henry Nowen's thoughts on this, I was like, this exactly right here is for me what pastoral care in terms of grieving and dying is all about. And uh, essentially this, um, so it rehashes this conversation, this young chaplain and this uh, man in his uh, late forties and the, the chaplain's asking the man, how's it going? I was here last week. The man's like, yeah, I remember you. Um, not going too well. I'm nervous for the surgery. I'm, uh, nervous for, um, I don't want to die in surgery, but I also am anticipating what I will be coming back to as well. Um, and the chaplain just was kind of repeating, you know, what the chaplain had learned in school, just repeating kind of what this person's thoughts were. And, um, in the midst of, I guess maybe anticipating what's to come and uh, Henry Nowen's comments on it were that there was a, and you know, and it's really easy, I think to critique after the fact, like, you know, people in, in intense pastoral care moments and what they, I don't know, didn't do right. I mean, cause I think it's, I mean, it's really hard. Ministry is really hard, but he was saying that, there is this duty that we have as ministers, as, uh, as leaders that in these moments with people to make it 
so crystal clear to look them in the eye and make it clear that I hear you. I see you. I'm with Mm. you. The church is with you. God is with you. And together we are going to lead you into tomorrow, whether that be here on earth or beyond. And I was like, yes, this is that right. Like, I think there is, I mean, and this goes back to, um, and in the, the, uh, Catholic tradition that I was talking about a little bit earlier. I don't know if you, have you guys seen the, there was a New York times article uh, called the last anointing that came out, I think a month ago. Mm. Have either of you seen that? No, I haven't. No. Fantastic article, but basically it's just talking, it was talking about uh, performing or Catholic priests performing the last rites um, during the time of COVID and, and coming into hospitals and, and what that's looked like and how, uh, the pandemic has really changed our relationship with death and how we think about how our own death and the death of our loved ones. Um, and he was talking about how um, there is, you know, again, like the anointing of the sick is, is a sacrament in Catholicism. And, and this Catholic priest in the article was saying that he views sacraments as hugs from God, as embraces from God. And mm. I was thinking, um, I don't know, there is in, in also in our, in our moments when we are providing pastoral care to someone who is grieving, who, who, when we are engaged, when we are sitting with someone who is grieving, there is some kind of like sacramental element to that mm. where it, there's, because I think in any of the sacraments, there's obviously something mysterious going on between, uh, people in the room and also knowing that God is in the midst doing something mysterious. And I think that even though, yeah, no, but sitting with someone who's grieving and it's not in itself a sacrament in, um, in, uh, again, in my tradition, but there is something really something to presence. There's something to creating. And it's not just even creating a space, but creating a space in which you are sitting right there with someone um, that. I think is, is the job of a minister. Yeah. To just make it, it's, it's the presence, it's the warmth, it's the authenticity in the midst of that as well. But also, yeah, like, I think it's funny because we learn a lot about, um, you know, I mean, there's our theology classes or like Karl Barth and like Kierkegaard and like biblical studies and all very important. But then, you know, I, I just, I wish we a lot of times read more spiritual writers, you know, I, I wish I, we knew how to speak and write uh, more tenderly, I guess, um, to touch people that way. Um, because that was another thing in, in the in, uh, Wounded Healer is uh, Henry Nowen was saying, like, there was a lot of people who were critiquing this young chaplain for, I don't know, what he could have done, what he should have done in that moment of, of being with this man who was about to go into surgery. And he's like, oh, you, you should have reminded him about this theological truth and this whatever and Henry Nowen's like I mean all of that is great and and uh comes from a really uh good place but at the end of the day like all these really complex theological ideas and truths and thoughts like I don't know when someone is is literally about to take their last breath like what they need to know is that God is embracing them, that God has forgiven them, that God is there with them, you know? And that's something that you don't learn until you're 
in those moments of, again, just being with real people. One of the names that Christians have for Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us when we are facing the anxiety of leading a church, a community, a people in the midst of a pandemic. God with us when we are doing the task of reintegrating the lives of those we've lost into our daily walk. God with us when we struggle to breathe. We wanted to give Pastor Clatter the final word. As we've seen in the past couple days and weeks, it's like, you know, COVID's hopefully going to be gone someday. Um, But what we're seeing now is like, well, what if we all worked just as hard to end systemic racism? Um, (laughs) Preach. Like, what if we, what if we, you know, there's so many people who are trying to work for a vaccine and, but like, what, what, how can the church, how can the, we, I not, I might not be a scientist um, to help make a vaccine for this, this virus, but I am in the changing hearts and lives business. Hmm. And if, if COVID's gone and it's affected us this much, how much more could we work towards ending injustice and racism in our in our country and what might that do to maybe spur on the next reformation of the church thank you for joining us for being church in the time of covid a podcast from princeton theological seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors theologians and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020 You can learn more about the Reverend Dr. Sonia Waters scholarship and the stories of Princeton Theological Seminary students like Jackie Rodriguez at ptsem.edu. And you can learn more about Pastor Dean Clatter at healdsburgcommunitychurch.com.